Assalamualaikum. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for sharing the story of coffee. I've just learned about you a few days ago, and I spent a few hours reading about you today, and I was just blown away by what you've done in such a short amount of time, and how relevant it is to the topic of coffee, and especially what I've been talking about for a few days. In reality, more a few years, but especially more now, when coffee is becoming more of a topical issue, um, or, or I guess uh, you know, topic of interest to a lot of people now. Oh, thanks so much. It's uh, I describe it as a beautiful struggle, and I'm very thankful for. <clears throat> the all of it good and bad yeah yeah okay so let's let's just kick off so i just want to have a conversation with you it's there's nothing formal to it but if you can just introduce so this is the first time we're talking so if you just introduce yourself i was actually born in liverpool so uh, i'm a undercover scouser no wor- <laughs> i did not expect yeah. you to say that that's that's amazing yeah. how, how did that happen uh there's a like a longer history of yemeni um uh, you can say exploration or, or um, diaspora in the UK, I think it started in Sheffield. Many Yemenis worked in the steel mills. And then uh, my family, therefore, from there moved to uh, Liverpool. And so I still have lots of family, my cousin Kamal and, um, and all of them over there in, uh, in uh, Toxteth, uh, okay. LA. And Sheikh uh, Ibrahim, the Felicity House, uh, someone I look up to a lot there. And a really wonderful community of people there. So I only recently in the maybe last few years I've been going back and getting to know them and and London. London as in, as I will talk about a little bit later, plays a really important role in the history of coffee and it's really where coffee becomes an institution. Um, yeah. so I uh, big big fan of uh of UK. Okay. That's that's so fascinating. When when were your family in Liverpool, roughly around what time? I think they came in the 60s, maybe in early, uh, late 50s. And then uh, my, my, my dad's father, my grandfather, Hamoud, and a lot of mercy on him, he, he came there, his older brothers moved there before him. Uh, and so my dad's uncles, his, their kids and their, and their grandkids, you know, they still live very much in Liverpool. So tens of cousins over there. Um, and my family, I, my dad, my mother was... Uh, and dad, they were leaving this, this uh, Yemen in the 1980s, and there was this um, civil war that was taking place. And so they left and went to England. My mother couldn't go to the U.S. yet. My grandfather and grandfather had immigrated to the U.S. in 1979 to New York. And so I was kind of born in limbo as a refugee in, in the U.K., in Liverpool. And then once we got our paperwork in order, we moved to New York, and I lived in Brooklyn in uh, and Bed-Stuy for a bit. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know that area really well. Okay, that's amazing. That's really yeah. interesting. Because the reason yeah, I asked... a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the reason I mentioned, I asked you for the time frame was because Liverpool has a really interesting history with Islam too because what it essentially was the very first place Islam started. I guess if you look at the native English population, one of the most prominent Muslims was, um, I think his name was Abdullah um, William, William, William. Yep. I didn't. I knew that very recently. I was. It's pretty amazing to, to hear that story. But um, yeah, it's a great, great place and lots of community there. And uh, I, I like the people of Liverpool. People, they're much more um, 
they're much more, I would say, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, honest and uh, um, direct. <laughs> Sometimes too much, but I like, I like that. Yeah, and compared to compared to London, I think London is is like a little bit like New York. It has the the positives of a big city, but then it has a lot of the the you know the the coldness of a big city too. Um, okay, fascinating. Okay, I didn't. Okay, that's there. You go. That's that's a lot of connections because you've got ports of Yemen now. You've got port of port of what of England in Liverpool. Then you're in uh, New York, which essentially was a port city. Now San Francisco, which is a port. So you you've been on. In the body of water for for it's, it's it's a telling thing actually I think that plays into the personalities we develop I think how close you are geographically to certain places um, but that's but anyway okay thanks for the introduction that's that's good good to know you so thank you for that yeah it's actually um, someone told me it was just that people take on the characteristics of the topography around them and so uh, there is this. Hadith, the Prophet Muhammad, you know, peace and blessings, says that the people of Yemen are the people of hikmah, of wisdom. And this guy translated, he said, well, the reason why is because in Yemen it's a very mountainous area and they live on mountains. And when you're on a mountain and you have to walk down a mountain, you have to be very careful where, you, where your foot lands. So people in Yemen, they tend to be very wise because they, they don't run, they take steps and they look ahead. And I thought that was interesting. And now that you brought it up with, you know, growing, growing up in around water, you take on certain characteristics of the environment you're in. Sometimes good and sometimes maybe not so good. Yeah, that's I've heard actually I haven't heard that about mountains, but I've heard something similar around the um the, the heights that you climb it causes you to reflect more. So if you look at Prophet Ibrahim and then Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, people on the link of reflection and that's you know the town which is further down and so that that height also causes a element of looking down things and and, and reflecting from 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 everyone else but but that's something that i think the priests you know did too back in uh, in the middle east is a christian tradition as well and i think jews have had the same idea of the hermits but but anyway now i think we're digressing but that's yeah that's definitely an interesting i think and Yemen is a very special place in Islam. It's it's one of the people blessed um, um, that, that the Prophet Muhammad did. I, th I think specifically mentioned. So that's you're from a you're from a Subhanallah, a beautiful place. So do you wanna do you wanna just just kick off? Um, I just wanna ask you some questions. I don't wanna take up too much of your time. Um, and I sent you uh, I sent you some points roughly to guide our conversation, but I just really wanted to get to know you and and the journey with coffee that you've had, just so my listeners, my my readership, and people who are interested in history of, of coffee and and its connection with Islam can I guess can can have a new sense of awareness of of who you are, which where you've come from, and and what are things that people maybe don't know that that you can share with us. Um, yeah, alhamdulillah, you know, we are all a product of our journey and our people and things that we have interacted with. And, uh, and for me, I would just, as, as many of your listeners or readers, um, a child of, you could say, the, the th a third culture kid. And growing up in a country that's not your family's origin, you find it very hard sometimes to find your place. Where do you belong? Especially in the U.S., where mainstream media doesn't always paint a very positive picture of your community, and we see the negative portrayals of Islam in, in Hollywood, 
um, going as far back as I was a kid watching Aladdin, which was is a, is a cartoon I loved, but I didn't realize like the subtle undertones of racism that that were played into it, um, and even you know things like when you hear the the negative evil characters in Aladdin like Jafar and so forth, they always have like a thick you know Arab immigrant accent. Yeah, what my family would kind of my uncles and my father would sound like, and then the, the positive characters had very clean English accents. Um, so growing up, you know, in that environment, I was always trying to find my, had to like, this kind of negotiation within myself. Who am I? You know, I love my family's culture. I love our music, our food, you know, our, our religion. But I also love hip hop, uh, sneakerhead, uh, sports and, you know, movies and these things. And so where do I fit? And it took me a long time to to realize that. And so early on, uh as you mentioned, like we are a product of our environments and I grew up post 9-11 was for us like, you know, it was a very dramatic experience. Experience. Um, the spotlight was shown on us and we became the new kind of boogeyman in the US and the world. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of negative government policies were put in place and some of them unfortunately are still in place that really target our civil rights and human rights and, um, these national overbroad national security policies were put in place. And so I did a lot of work uh, kind of as a go-between between the Muslim community and different city civic engagement institutions like City Hall here. Uh, and yeah. in this place, I I would often translate for the messages, you know, for and we would have um, different legal organizations um, like the ACLU or the Council on American Sign Relations. They would do these know your rights workshops to teach communities how to defend their rights when, you know, approached by different law enforcement. And so I was this kid who would go and translate for them. Uh, and I, I liked the space. And at one point I was like, you know what? I think this is what I want to be. I want to be a lawyer. And my family loved, they loved that idea. Uh, I always tell people that, you know, as an immigrant kid, your parents, they've risked so much to make it to this country. Yeah. That's a good decision. I think that's a safe decision. Law, law is, <laughs> parents wouldn't say no to law. That's, that's true. You know, you know, like, you know, we all have that, that story from our grandparents or parents. We came to this country with $200 in our pockets. Or, and, and we had to toil and struggle. And you guys are over here wasting your lives watching cat videos on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, those kind of things. And, and buying $7 you know, kombucha smoothies. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, it's very important to realize that journey. What, how hard it was for them to come to a new country with not much resources or language barriers, cultural barriers. But... Um, and so oftentimes our parents want to focus on our financial and material success, right? And like, you know, you got to be a doctor, an engineer, or a lawyer. <laughs> I have this joke, my friend, uh, he said he told his dad he wanted to be a actor. And his yeah. father said, beta, beta, it's pronounced doctor. <laughs> um, so like these kind of like things happen. So I was like, I want to be a lawyer. And my parents... Loved it, great. So I did a lot of work. I worked uh, as a paralegal and I worked in this nonprofit organization that gave legal services to low-income low immigrants and people of color. Um, and that's what I did. Everything was around this kind of, this is what I wanted to do. And I had community organizing. And then I think when I was in my early, late, late teens, you know, I again started to have these questions of like, you know, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to do with my life? And a lot of millennials, we get this place where we're like, we don't know what our, what our road or map, what are we supposed to do, you know? And um, 
it was in this kind of certain circumstances that I had to really figure that out. I also come from a family that didn't really have much. My dad's a bus driver. We grew up in a one-bedroom flat. It's, I had six siblings. So it was nine of us in one little yeah, physical space. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, alhamdulillah, you know, it's, it's part of my life. And I, I, I'm very thankful for being able to experience that. Uh, that because I often I learned a lot of a lot of early lessons in my life living in that environment. Um, grew up in a, a neighborhood called the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Um, comedian Dave Chappelle, when he described my neighborhood, he said, "Ain't nothing tender about that place." I think I've seen that special uh, with Dave Chappelle. I remember that reference. That's funny. Yeah, it's uh, what, for what it's worth, it's just a really great special and. Yeah, it's it's highest amount of drug violence in, in the city. And as a kid, you know, seeing that every day and every day and out, day and out, violence. It's it was just it was definitely shocking and hard, but it was something I had to adopt, adapt to. And so, um, I'm very fortunate to be where I am today because people I grew up with, you know, were it was hard for us to move to. Is there to a big Arab Yemeni community where you are? There is um, a lot of Yemenis came to California in the 70s, um, and many of them worked in the grape fields with uh, picking grapes because we were used to being in agriculture in, in, in Yemen. Uh, and so in my community, it was lots of Yemenis, uh, Pakistanis out there, Latinos, Vietnamese, the huge Vietnamese community. It was actually a neighborhood in our, within us called, they call it Little Saigon. Really? In reference to Saigon in, in Vietnam. And so all these different communities that have their own like intergenerational traumas. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, and we come to these countries because a lot of times the, the host country, in our case, U.S., they imp- implement certain policies that really cause these, you know, these, these conflicts to happen. So in Yemen, in my case, my parents left because there was a Cold War, you know, battle between South and North Yemen. You know, the, the South being supported by Warsaw Pact and, the, you know, the communist countries and the North being supported by the, the Western, you know, um, capitalist countries. Uh, and all that, you know, we, we, we end up being the, the blowback of this. Um, so my parents, you know, left to try to find a better place like other communities. And as a kid, I, you know, wasn't the best, you know, was, I was, to say I was a troublemaker was, was an understatement. <laughs> I really feel bad for the things I put my parents through and uh, just getting into a lot of trouble, being around, involved in things I shouldn't be involved in, just in my neighborhood. It's where I grew up around. Um, but I loved books. I really loved reading a lot of books. Uh, they were the, my my escape from that space. Uh, what did you What then, did you grow up reading? Was What was your interest? So I didn't have a lot of money, and I I couldn't. I I had this like little ghetto library in my mother's pantry kitchen where I collected books, and some of them like I, you know I found some of them I borrowed from the library indefinitely, <laughs> and I liked to read books that took me out of my life, like that life, that reality. So mostly fantasy books. Were you reading I loved, English or were you reading Arabic? Uh, I was reading English then. I loved reading Harry Potter series. That was my favorite book. Yeah. Without any Harry Potter fans. Like, you know, this, this kid who grew up in this horrible situation. And then lo and behold, one day he finds out that he doesn't belong in this life. And this is not his real family. Or it is, but he has another family and, and a bigger destiny. So that kind of, those ideas are very powerful for a kid. To think that, you know, he can be destined to something bigger. And I think probably one of the saddest things in the world is that young children who grow up in these difficult environments, they're not allowed the ability to dream. Because when you're trying to survive, you can't dream. And they, 
I think there's a poet, her name is Naria Wahid. She said, uh, who you, where you are is not who you are. And it, it took me a long time to like think that, for a long time I thought that, you know, I grew up poor and I'm in this environment and, you know, my friends go on to do these things and I'm, my life is going to be this box I'm in. I didn't like being defined that way. So a lot of my life was trying to figure out how to leave it. And I realized uh, as I grew up that these people who, who were being successful, they weren't necessarily smarter than me or better. They just had more you know, resources and they didn't have to deal with financial challenges. My parents had to deal with that helped answer your question. Okay, you so let's, about the theme about coffee. Yeah, so let's, let's, jump in on the, let's jump in on the coffee. So for, for the listener's benefit, could you give us a brief history of the, the, the role of Yemen in coffee and just generally how it started? Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a very like, long topic. And I really just, as a, as a point of clarification, uh, I'm going to give you a very high level understanding of it. And I'm going to focus more on the, on the Eastern side because so what really is not talked about a lot, spoken about, um, because that requires, you know, delving into the Arabic language, Turkish language, Amharic, um, Hindi, like different cultures to understand really where that begins. And most of what we know about coffee is, is in the English language and usually the Western uh, viewpoint of it. So I'm just going to give a, an overview on this side. Uh, I definitely recommend for anyone listening a few books to read about the subject of coffee. There's a wonderful book called The Merchant Houses of Mocha. Uh, the author, her name is Nancy Um. Okay. Uh, there's an incredible podcast, a dear, dear friend of mine, close friend named Abdurrahman Malik, who uh, it's, he's a journalist, and this, he did this documentary on the BBC. It's a radio documentary, and it's called The Secrets Life or The Secret Story of the Mohammedan Bean. I think that's what it's called. Okay, uh, we'll a put great, a link in the description so people can find it. Great. Listen to because they'll can go into much detail about a lot of things. Um, and so to, to answer your question, uh, I, let's just start at the beginning. And so no one knows exactly where coffee begins. And anyone who claims, I just, I mean, I look at things historically through, through study and analysis and through documentation, um, scientific documentation, you know, that's through bi biological studies of, genetics of the coffee and how it spreads. And so look, uh, looking at that, the, the World Coffee Research Program, um, which I've worked with in the past, and the Coffee Quality Institute, uh, these are the two probably most famous, non uh, famous coffee nonprofits in the world. On, and through their studies, coffee begins, coffee is, a, is uh, it begins somewhere in the Eastern Afro-Montane region. And this place is, Somewhere in parts of South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Western Yemen. This is where it begins. Um, okay. uh, no one knows where exactly. Some say the domestication began in an, an area called Harar, which is in, in Eastern Ethiopia, which, by the way, is the Muslim stronghold city of, 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 um, in Ethiopia. Um, and uh, there's a debate between, this historic debate between Yemen and Ethiopia. Depending on side, yeah. And depending on which side of the, the Red Sea you live, you'll have a different answer. And um, I'm probably the only Yemeni who thinks coffee began in Ethiopia. <laughs> Just a disclaimer out there. Sorry to all my Yemen, Yemenis listening on right now. Um, I'm going to have to cut you off. This, this is over. No, we can't. We can't. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much for the time. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> I hope you keep me on. Uh, let me clarify. So, 
uh, as a plant, I think because when I go into, I go visit Ethiopia usually every year for work um, with farmers and 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 it's the genetics of coffee. It's really interesting there. It's uh, most coffee farms have 50, 60 cultivars of coffee that are there and varieties. Um, but they didn't drink coffee in Ethiopia originally. What they would do is coffee grew wildly. It wasn't even cultivated intentionally. It would grow wild and people in Ethiopia would take the cherries because uh, for those who are listening, coffee is an actually, it's actually a tropical fruit. And it has these cherries that grow once a year. And in the cherries, there are these five layers, the skin, the mucilage, the parchment, the silver skin, and then these, these seeds, these two seeds. And those two seeds are actually coffee beans. So when we're drinking coffee, it's actually a roasted seed that's grinded and then extruded. Um, and so uh, they would take the cherry um, and they would sometimes put animal fat around it and they would eat it before going to long, long battles, like an early keto diet, I would say. Okay. Um, so they didn't drink it. The first people to actually consume coffee, to cultivate it intentionally and to consume it, were Muslims who lived in Yemen. Um, and so uh, Dr. Abdulrahman would say that Kavi's birthplace is in Ethiopia. Uh, its soul is in Yemen. The first cup was poured in Yemen. And I like that. That's I can accept this. Okay. Okay. We can that's my like kind of my kind of balance. The, the, historically, the written in the written uh, world, the earliest mention of coffee is in Ibn Sina's Qanun uh, Fatib. He mentions bunchum. You know, what's coffee? The word. The full word is Qahwat al-Bun. Okay. Um, so Qahwa is in, in, look at the etymology of the word, is, is an Arabic word. What it means, it means al-Khamr al-Ladhi yuthiru nashwa. The wine that raises you to a state of ecstasy. <laughs> That's the literal, like one of the words for coffee. Okay. Um, Was and, this and, word used for wine before coffee came along? Was this a pre-coffee word? It's, yes, it's, it's a type of wine. Yeah, it's a type of wine. Just just like in Arabic, you know, we have the word hub, like love. Yeah. There's there's hub, there's mawadda, there's gharam, there's ishq. Each one gotcha. has a different meaning, connotation. Like ishq is more erotic, mawadda is more like closeness, you know. Um, and so that's what wine means. The other, there's another uh, meaning for wine. It's yukhuk or yukhukan anatam. It satiates you or makes you not hungry. When that's what yeah. coffee does. And this is very important because when coffee first came in the Muslim world, um, many of the scholars, you know, and, and like, like in today, unfortunately, whenever something is new, the first thing some of them say is it, it's haram, then ask questions, <laughs> um, which isn't really the case Islamically. You know, uh, the, 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 the axiom is that things are legal first, and there's five things that usually are the ones that are harmful for you. But because of the word qahwa, that word um, which how did qahwa become the word coffee? Qahwa, which is, you know, you know in English, Q-A-W-H-A, qahwa. It's uh, the Turkish Ottoman Empire uh, ruled deep into Yemen. And they were the reasons why, reason why coffee was, I think, in my opinion, became this, this international sensation. They ruled the port of Mocha. Um, and through their routes, uh, coffee became a very important beverage in Istanbul, in Turkey. Uh, and so, like I said, like kahwa, coffee's birthplace is in Ethiopia, its soul is in Yemen. It becomes an art in Turkey, so my friend Abdul Rahman says. In the first 
coffee houses, the first, you know, it's actually called, it was called Kiev Hana. It's in, in Istanbul in the 1400s. The first um, kind of barista culture, the, there was a kind of master barista, I forget the exact name, but the, he, he had a very close relationship with the Ottoman Sultan. Uh, and so it becomes an art form in, in Turkey. Um, and so in, in Turkish language, it, they have a hard time like, pronouncing the Arabic letter wow. So they say, instead of wali, you know, they'll say veli, the V. Yeah. Kahwa becomes, becomes kahva, K-A-H-V-E. Okay. Uh, and the Dutch take that, because the Dutch VOC, which we'll get to in a bit, they take and they spell it K-O-F-F-I-E, which is coffee. And then I think in 1582 or so, it entered the English language as coffee or coffee, if you're from Brooklyn. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, okay. It's... It's a lot. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to like digress, but going back to the, the, the historical documents, the first written work on coffee that's, that's agreed upon is a, by a, a scholar named Sheikh Ali ibn Umar al-Shadri. Um, and he lived in Yemen. And this is the first coffee culture. The first people to consume co- coffee were Sufi monks or Sufi scholars who lived in Yemen. Sheikh Ali grew up, was born in Tarim, a very city woman renowned for both scholarship and love the prophet's family and he had a zawiya he had a center in, in mocha and there's actually a city in yemen called al-maha or yeah, in english right. mocha mocha um, and so he begins advocating the drink of coffee he called it zadu salihin the drink or the sustenance of the righteous uh, and he writes this in this book uh, called inas as-safwa bi anfas al-qahwa which could be translated as the people of Safwa, uh, self-purification, uh, in the breaths of coffee. And for, so for me, like back as my childhood, when I was, you know, you know, just bugging out and going down the wrong path, my dad got really, you know, he, he did what any normal parent would do. He took me to boot camp in Yemen. <laughs> and so... What does that look like I in left, Yemen? You know, I left the U.S. when I was 12 years old, and I went to study... In Yemen, he wanted me to become a scholar, which is kind of a, a, a pretty radical shift. And so he took me to uh, to uh, Islamic school and madrasa in Yemen. And I was very fortunate to do two things: one, to understand Arabic scholarship at a high level, a high academic level, and I read and write in Arabic better than I do in English. And and it gave me access to a world of knowledge and books that I would never have been able to read in history, books by authors like Ibn Kathir, you know, and uh, uh, just a wide range of books that I can read and access. And I got to meet my grandfather who played a big role in my life and shaping my thoughts. And, you know, my your grandparents usually are people who, I think parents sometimes there's a friction between us because they're, they're so close to us and they're trying to figure things out, especially when you're the oldest, like I am. Um, we're kind of, the, I always say the starter, starter kids. But um, your grandparents are, you know a lot about who you are from their identity. So he taught me a lot about my life and, and seeing his, him and how he dealt with people. Um, and so this book, uh, when I, in the middle of my you know, early teen, uh, 20s, trying to figure out my life, I stumbled upon coffee by accident. And it's a longer story that you guys can read about. But when I got a hold of this, um, of, of, I heard about this book and I read a few lines of it. Uh, he, he says, uh, this is in the lines, he says, 
وعانتني بعون الله على طاعة الله والناس نيامي لا تلوموني على شربي لها إنها شراب السادة الكرامي And this is translated as O oh, coffee, a oh, story of love You helped me repel away my sleep You helped me stay awake and worship my Lord While people fell asleep Don't blame me for my intense love for coffee For it is the drink of the righteous people That's beautiful That's, that's really interesting Yeah, that's, I've, I've heard of the early uses of coffee So why, why did it take off so much with Sufis And not your everyday Joe, why, why was it only within that one type of, um, of a person? Was it just, just because it was a difficult drink to make and, 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 and drink and digest? What, do, you, do you know why? Or it's just, we, don't, we just don't know. I have my theories, but um, I do know that he went to Hajj, this, uh, Sheikh Ali Muhammad, and then from there to Palestine. And from Palestine, he went to Africa and to Ethiopia and Harar. And he married a wife from Ethiopia. I think that's where he's, he saw coffee being either consumed or the plant. And especially in Harar, because and if, you, if you travel throughout to Ethiopia, it's a beautiful country. It's very diverse. So many different types of um, people who live there and languages and cultures within the country. And most of the homes are usually huts with like kind of straw, round domes for the roofs. But in Harar, you notice the houses have flat roofs, you know, made of mud that are really made for drying coffee. Uh, and so I think he sees coffee consumption there. I'm not sure if it's a drink or if it's just the cherries. In, in, the, in the Middle East, the Arabs, we, we're known for these things called droops. Droops are things we roast, like, like pistachios and almonds. So I'm assuming that Sheikh Ali roasted these coffees and he was trying to figure out how to consume it as a beverage. And he developed, there's many theories of how he did this. Some you know, say, another theory is a different, a different student of his or what was in the was dispelled into um, he went to the to Khalwa, into isolation in the wilderness in Yemen. He found this, this tree and he was trying to eat it because he had no food. And he figured out a way to consume it through through roasting. He threw the cherries into the beans into the fire one, one night and he smelled it, an amazing aroma. And he tried to figure out a way to consume it. And he figured out he can he tried to make a soup. Soup did not work, and he made this drink out of it. And what would be similar to how we make a Turkish coffee now. Yeah. Um, and, and nutritionally, they would actually roast the entire cherry with the seed inside and grind that. Um, and so whatever the case, he saw that this drink had very righteous attributes. It gave one alertness. It made one not hungry. So it, it quelled one of the, the, um, the cardinal sins of, of humans, which is, which is, which is uh, gluttony. Yeah. And, and it helped us awaken from lethargy. lethargy and so he... He prescribed it as something that could help us pray at night. And that was the, the early consumption of coffee was specifically as a drink to help people stay awake for night prayers. Okay. This is, this is a lot. You, it, it took me a lot to understand and to travel to these countries and read these books. So his book, and the actual, the oldest manuscript in the world uh, on coffee is a book that came later. So this is the, in the 1400s we're talking about for Sheikh Ali's book. Uh, coffee spreads from Yemen, people saw the strength that brought people together and they would come together at night after long days of, of working and they would pass around the cup and drink it and make dua and sing, sing these songs and think in praise of all God and praise of his family, Prophet Salaam's family and peace and be upon and them. This, and, and this still happens, right? This is, this is, absolutely. this is still happening. Other people message me saying, 
I had this dua in my school. We still do this. When I go to dhikr sessions, we're still doing this. So this is still a very much active part of a culture that's continued for centuries now. Absolutely. The, the, the famous, there's a, actually a fatiha. Is it, so in Yemen, there's actually a section, a, a, a genre of, of a shiur called mshayikh al-qahwa, coffee shiurs. And you can get a ijaza, a authorization to make coffee that goes back to the sheikh. One of the things in my life that I'm very proud of is I was, I was given ijaza from somebody to do it that goes back with this sheikh. And that meant a lot to me because I had got like, you know, the certifications to be a coffee taster and, and we get into that later and how to like be a certified sommelier for coffee and those things. But it felt more important to have a spiritual connection to coffee. And, uh, and, and it's, it's like a short, um, they call it. Uh, it's very like beautiful like you know to, to think about that coffee was this very beautiful spiritual practice um so it becomes very popular in yemen and from yemen it begins to go to the hijaz to what is now saudi arabia um and this is a very interesting story the the ottoman ruler khayd bay in the year 1511 one, the story goes that he was, he was walking one night in the streets of Mecca and he sees a group of people. Keep in mind, Mecca around this time, you know, believe it or not, was, had, a lot, had a really interesting underworld. <laughs> like a lot of um, secret taverns where they drunk alcohol and oh. other things. Okay. People don't realize that it was like, it was a different time period then. And so he sees these, these men in a circle around a campfire and he smells a very interesting aroma and he comes closer, very sweet smell. Um, and he sees them take something and they start to pulverize and grind these beans after they roast it. Then they would take the coffee that's roasted, that's grinded, and they would put it in what we kind of look at as a Turkish pot nowadays. And they would pour it after that. After I think it was three um, boils, they would put it in this cup, one large cup. And so what they would do is they would actually have one cup. It was very communal. And they would share the cup around people. And he noticed that as they drunk the coffee, this drink, their eyes lightened up. Their demeanor and mood was uplifted. They began to smile and laugh and talk. And he heard them recite certain, one of them a poem because he wasn't a very um, righteous ruler against him. And so that really worried him. Um, and so he uh, went to his uh, court. And at that time, he, there was two Persian physicians in the court. Whether or not they were influenced by him because he did not like the idea of people getting together in crowds and, and talking about politics, or whether he actually thought this was actually an intoxicant, you know, that changed their, 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 their mental state. They were, they banned coffee. They authorized it as an illegal drink and he banned it. And then subsequently in Cairo, which at that time Cairo became very popular. This is the 1500s now. I was talking with the founder of Blue Bottle, James Freeman, a friend of mine. Blue Bottle Coffee is a very famous coffee chain here in the U.S. And he told me, you know, Mokhtar, because in coffee, we hear the term third wave of coffee. This kind of hipster, kind of like new coffee wave. It's called the third wave. Um, he says in the 1500s, 
there were 3,000 coffee houses in Cairo that were serving single origin Yemeni coffee. What wave was, was that? Um, so coffee became very popular in Egypt uh, through the Yemeni quarters in Al-Assa University. The, the rulers over there also banned coffee after what, what they saw in the Hejaz. Uh, people rioted in the streets demanding their coffee. And so there was a big fitna. This is part of the unknown history of, of coffee in the Muslim world. Before coffee became anywhere popular in Europe, it was a threat to be gone before it even started. Uh, and there were actually several fatwas against coffee from major scholars from Asa University. Uh, because of the, the, the political aspect, the rulers didn't like this, this drink, what it, what it could do to people coming together. Uh, they didn't, you know, the Muslim scholars who thought it was, you know, khamr, it was some kind of wine. Um, and they were actually, would, would break and throw the coffees in the streets uh, of, of Cairo. Uh, and then in the year 1587, a man named Abdul Qadir al-Jaziri al-Hanbali, this Muslim scholar, wrote a very important book, and in many ways, he saved coffee. He writes this book called Umdat al-Safwa fi Hal al-Qahwa, the pillars of Safwa, like self-purification, and uh, for the defense of coffee. This is the oldest manuscript in existence of coffee, and it's located in the La Bibliothèque des Nationales, the National Library in, in Paris, in France. Uh, and and actually, was able... Yeah, I actually like I've been trying to go see it, but it took me like two years. You have to have a special either be a researcher from a major institution or you know, a journalist. And eventually I was able to go see it. It's a longer story of how that happened. And it's kind of funny, but um, it was incredible to see this this book. And I was given it uh, eventually was able to lobby for a digital copy of it. And I'm in the process of, of translating it because it's seven chapters. Right. First chapter is about history of coffee and, and spread through Yemen and. The second is about jurisprudence in Islam, how we derive our jurisprudence. The third is how, are, you know, what coffee and why it's good for you. It was like all these wonderful chapters, but the end of it, the, the, um, the uh, uh, last chapter had these wonderful poems about coffee. Um, uh, it, was, it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, book. And I think, uh, you know, it would do well for people to get to chance to read it so he are says, you translating this now or something you want to do inshallah i'm working with you know i'm looking on the right for the right institution to help me translate it you know there's a few in england i'm looking into and in the u.s um to translate it to the wider audience you know muslim non-muslims alike because it is something that the thing about coffee is it's such a mainstream thing that it can you know go throughout our muslim community but he says these things like and i'm looking for a proper like you know uh, arabic uh, scholar, Englishman, Trent, you know, to, to actually do this the right way and be able to um, do it, you know, in a very academic way. And so he says things like, um, "Whoever tastes coffee will forever will forever swear the liquor of the grape. Oh, drink of God's glory! Your purity brings to men only well-being and nobility." And he goes, "Where coffee is served, there is grace and splendor and friendship and happiness." Uh, and then one of my favorites, no one. Can understand the truth until he drinks of its frothy goodness. Those who condemn coffee as causing man harm are fools in the eyes of God. Oh, coffee, you dispel the worries of the great. You point the way to those who have wandered from the path of knowledge. Coffee is a drink. Coffee is a drink of the friends of God and of His servants who seek wisdom. I even get emotional just reciting these words because it's it really is a, an amazing thing. And 
I love the taste of coffee, you know, and I, don't get me wrong, it's a wonderful drink, but I fell in love with its impact on humanity because before coffee came to Europe, the drink of choice was alcohol. You know, the dark ages were plugged with like alcoholism, really. And when coffee comes into the European continent in cities like London, Paris, Vienna, people for the first time drink a beverage that ignites their soul and curiosity. It, it heightens their state. It doesn't confuse them like alcohol does. And that's why you see the French and Russian and American revolutions happen in coffee houses, the first yeah. newspapers. London, so Abdelman says, the birthplace is in Ethiopia, its soul is in Yemen, it becomes an art in Istanbul, and it becomes an institution in London. Because you get to the 1800s where for every 100 people, for every 140 people, there was one coffee house. Lloyd's Bank was started in a coffee house. Um, and it becomes a huge part of society. It's where people come to learn news. There were some coffee houses where you, to enter, you had to announce a bit of information to the world, to them about the world. In Oxford, they called them penny, penny universities because for a penny, you can buy a cup of coffee and learn something. And they would argue that they learn more in these spaces in the coffee houses than they did in universities. Um, and so I, I, this is the, for me, the very important part of coffee and, and how as Muslims, we, we should look at it as this thing that really changed the world. What, yeah. what would happen if coffee wasn't around? It's the second most consumed drink. And I can really go on and on about this, but I, I want to keep it to this point. And, you know, no, it's no, that's my, I'm, you're my host. And so I want no, to uh, no, direct, direct this conversation. I can, I can, I can be on mute. You can keep talking. You know, it's interesting because my, my interest in coffee, just to connect with what you've just said, started because, so I work, I work in London. I work in the, the old heart of London, the old city. Um, I work right next to where the, the, the crusader, um, where the Knights Templars were based. It's a very historic medieval part of London. And this is the place where coffee first came into London, where the Bank of England is. It's not far from where, where I am. And this is where the first coffee house was started. And I realized that there was this cafe that I used to go to right next to it was a, was a pub. And one day I read the plaque. You know, there, was a, there was a beautiful bronze. The, the Turkish, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so this is, so there was, a, there was a pub and there was a plaque on it. And, and the plaque said this was a coffee house around the 1660s, 1670s. And this was a few years ago and I just, just read it and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I moved on. And then I started realizing you started seeing a lot of signs on old pubs, which were either, um, you know, washed off or almost disappeared, which said something like coffee house. And so, and then I read, it, read up on this and I realized most of these pubs actually were coffee houses in their inception. And that's where I became really interested because to to live in the UK and or Europe, you know, alcohol is is the way of life. It's everything that people talk about. It's all they do. And as a Muslim, we don't connect with that element of it. But to know there were once coffee houses that fed into the the Renaissance, the European Enlightenment, and the age of curiosity and science, that part of it really appealed to my Muslim side because this is this is who we were, people of curiosity and learning. So you're absolutely right. That that attribute of coffee. Is, is invaluable to Europe and to Islam. And that's something that I think we can still reflect on. And this is one of the reasons coffee, I think, is still relevant to us today. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's really, uh, there's, uh, an, there's, it's just, uh, there's a lot of history around, around just that and why it's, it's a beautiful drink. And, you know, so for me, I fell in love with the history of coffee. And I was like, you know, why, what, where is coffee now? Why do we have, where's Yemeni coffee? 
Where can we find Yemeni car? And I couldn't find any. In London, it's almost impossible to find them. Do you know this? I've been to some really famous coffee houses and I've asked them and they just look at me and just say, it's really hard to get Yemeni coffee. And, and I just, and I'm like, so what's what second best you have? And you're lucky if you get Ethiopian. You're lucky if you get Ethiopian. So I'm interested. And in why, why is Yemeni coffee so hard to find? If you can tell us that. When I, when I was doing the history, looking at the history of coffee, I, real, I found a very interesting, sad fact that in, in the city of Yemen, Mocha, part of Mocha, there was uh, in the 1850s, maybe 60, 70,000 tons of coffee being shipped out of Yemen. And now it's less than 15,000 tons. And I was just shocked, you know, like, what the heck? And so what happened was at that time in the 1400s, from the 1400s to probably the 1600s, the only place in the world that sold coffee was in Yemen. And Yemen had a strict monopoly. And the Muslim rulers, the Yemeni Imam, the family that ruled Yemen were very smart. They, they know the, the power of coffee and the, how valuable it was. So they, they instituted a, a law that it was illegal to sell coffee seeds to foreigners. You can only sell seeds that were baked or boiled, beans that, were, that, that could not grow again. Uh, and the punishment was actually death. Uh, and so Yemen had this monopoly on coffee for about 200 years, 150, 200 years. Mm-hmm. And there, there are different stories of how coffee left Yemen. One was a Indian saint named Brother Baba Budan. And he, he loved coffee so much that he was willing to risk his life. And he, some say he snuck seven seeds or some seeds in his underwear. <laughs> um, and some say he was kind of chubby and he was able to hide it under his fat, in his belly. <laughs> I don't know. The, he took it to the south of India where he, there's actually still a shrine for him till today. Um, and the other was the Dutch East India Company, the VOC. They were a very notorious um, company. Most of the West Atlantic slave trade happened through this, com- this company. So they began doing work in Yemen in 1616. Um, and they, the Yemeni Imam had set up an incredible uh, network for coffee to be um, distribute, distributed so it had to become it all got centralized in a city called Beit al-Faqi which was in the south of Yemen near the port of Mocha so foreigners could not go into mainland Yemen uh, and it was there it was collected it was taxed and then it was sent from there to um, to to Mocha a lot of there were a lot of Indian uh, um, community buying that were there a lot of every embassy in the world or every co- People, a country in the world had an embassy or ambassador at that time in Roca. It was a very vibrant city. And the Dutch, they sent spies and they were able to steal, the story goes, seven seeds. And they took those seeds from Yemen to Indonesia and they grew it on the island of Java. And that's where the name Java comes from. Wow. Java and Mocha were these two places where coffee first began. Coffee, there's, there's two species of coffee. Robusta, which is low elevation, low coffee, which is usually cheap, much cheaper and low quality. This is weaker, right? Arab, it's not strong. It's actually stronger because people don't realize caffeine is a chemical. It's, an, it's, a, it's this organic chemical that is a this self-defense mechanism plants produce to kill insects. So when, when insects come into contact with caffeine, they consume it, they become paralyzed and then they die. It's a horrible way to go. Um, and so the high elevation is Arabica from Arabia. And so Arabica coffee, the higher you go in elevation, it's colder and harsher and there's less insects. So there's less need for caffeine. So these coffees have double the natural sugars. And they're sweeter and taste better. And that's why 
high elevation coffees are more expensive. And in Yemen, if you look at our pictures, you know, our website, well, you, know, you can see like Yemen coffee, Yemenese built villages on the tops of mountains for defensive purposes. So we have the highest grown coffee in the world, like some of the highest ever that go above 2,500 meters above sea level, some of these areas. Um, and so the other one is Arabica, which is from Arabia, from Yemen. And like 90% of the world's coffees go back to Yemeni coffee. So those seven seas that went to Indonesia, the Dutch had a peace treaty with the French after this you know, the Spice Islands War. And the Dutch gift a plant to the French as a peace offering. The French built one of the first greenhouses in the world for that. Uh, and the man named Gabriel de Clou in 1721 takes cuttings from that tree and crosses the Atlantic Ocean. On the way, they were robbed by Algerian pirates. Shout out to any Algerians out there. And then they began to, to ration their water and their food supply. And Gabriel de Clou, this man was, he loved the coffee so much, he, he would give much of his water supply to this plant in this glass jar he had. People thought he was crazy. They make it to cross the Atlantic to the, the Caribbean, to the island of Martinique. And from there it gets to Haiti. At one point, Haiti produces half of the world's coffee. And when the Haitian people fought for their self-determination and liberation from the French, the retreating French forces burned most, most of their crops. Eventually, coffee makes its way to Central and South America. And now Brazil produces about one-third of the world's coffee from this, this one tree, by the way, that came from France. It's called the, the noble tree. And 90% of the world's production traces its roots back to this one tree. Then from seven seas from Indonesia, then from Yemen. And in biology, this is called genetic bottleneck. And this is why Yemeni coffee and Ethiopian coffee are so unique because of like the amount of diversity of genetics. Like in, when I say the word variety or cultivar, in apples, you know, we have red Washington apples, Granny Smith green apples, Pink Lady, Fuji apples. But each one tastes different. Well, in coffee, we have different cultivars and varieties of them, like Tipica, Babon, Katawai, Katora, Udaini, Tufahi, and they taste different. Um, so there's about 200 commercial varieties in the world. Most coffee countries that produce, and there's only 66 or 70 countries that can produce coffee. It can't be grown in Europe, really, in North America. It's countries that are in between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. Um, they usually have two cultivars and mutations from them, except for Yemen. Uh, also Ethiopia, we have just unknown amounts of coffee rolled cultivars. Um, and what makes Yemeni coffee special is because of the elevation, the extreme elevation, coffee matures much slower and produces more sugars and acids. The lack of water. Our coffee trees are under lots of stress and that stress produces more complexity in the flavor. Uh, and then the third is these vaults of this cultivar. This is what makes our coffee very unique. It's just um, after coffee was taken from Yemen, it's spread around the world. The people were no, no, no longer wanted like high quality coffee. They got cheap instant coffee for their Maxwell and Folgers and, and Starbucks and so forth. And so people just, you know, wanted the coffee for caffeine. What's interesting now with this new third grade of coffee is people are starting to understand cultivars and process techniques. And they want to know more about fermentation and certain flavors. Um, and so you'll know, you get to know that, wow, like Kenyan coffees have a green apple taste that's really sweet. Ethiopians, yeah. some of them have this very sweet blueberry taste. Guatemalan coffees can have this more chocolate flavor. Uh, Panama coffees have a special cultivar called Gesha that has a, a very champagne, like kind of like jasmine floral note, you know, and, and, and you start to learn and understand it much in a much more intimate way. So when I got into coffee, I got to experience all these different origins. And when I kept asking for Yemen, I realized, you know, when I looked at the story history that it was just left behind. And 
in a good way that was left behind that it was kind of isolated from all like industrialization of coffee and all the weird experiments and the weird hybrids that they were making in labs it kept and protected these ancient cultivars and so i i went around to ask people like where can i get it and because of the difficulty of sourcing coffee no one no one wanted to go to yemen and so i had to go to yemen in 2013 and begin this journey and had no idea what i was getting myself into so how so what happened so you went to yemen and and you, you started discovering the coffee that's still there that people are still growing but it wasn't growing in large quantities you couldn't get it out easily out of yemen and then obviously the war happened and it's been always been happening for a while but it really escalated so how 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 has the journey been for you to get people to work with you in yemen and bring it out now how has that been as a as a, as a journey i guess I'm, I'm still on that journey but but to answer your question it was it was really hard you know because i i didn't have any I didn't drink coffee seven years ago. <laughs> Just to let you know right now. That's like my, like, I, I thought coffee was very bitter. Wait, do you and still do it? Do you drink coffee now? No, no, I drink, and <laughs> unfortunately, I, I, I drink a lot of coffee. Like, I was, I drink coffee. Part of my work is I have to do a lot of quality control. And so I, yesterday I was, I drank, I had to drink, taste 36 cups of coffee, different types of coffees. It was a Panama. It was long. So, but seven years ago, the coffee I, I knew was very bitter. You know, you bought from store, local stores and, you know, you had to put lots of loads of cream and sugar just to make it, you know, drinkable. Yeah. And, and you drink it for really the caffeine to stay up for, for exams, you know, or studies or like late night drives. Um, and as I was learning about the history of coffee in 2012, 2013, I walked into a coffee shop. It's this kind of specialty coffee shop. And I, I bought a cup of coffee from Ethiopia. It was like $5, which at that time I thought was very expensive for coffee. I'm like, why would someone pay that much? It's like a dollar, you know? And I tasted this cup and it was phenomenal. It had taste, it had these notes of blueberry, honeysuckle, this sweet lingering aftertaste. Like I didn't think this was coffee. And so I asked Wait, this is, this is, this is an Ethiopian blend you had? This is an Ethiopian coffee. It was my first real specialty coffee I had. I remember wow. that it was 2014, 2013. Wait, where was this? It was in a cafe in San Francisco. Wow. Okay. And I'm like, and I, and I, I was just really blown away by the flavor it had. I'm like, what is this? And the guy's like, well, this is coffee. I'm like, did you put anything in it? Like, how does this, where does this blueberry taste come from? Yeah. He goes, no, this is like the right way coffee is supposed to be when you, when you buy the coffee from, we have a direct relationship with this producer. We, we, we pay them more to produce certain flavor, you know, to, to, to focus on quality and they, they get to pay, get paid more. And I was just like, I was blown away because I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Like you can, you, you can uplift somebody by empowering them. It's not charity you know, give them direction of what, what they can do and pay them more for this. Cause a lot of extra labor to do this kind of work. And I just really liked this idea. I was like, this is pretty cool. And, and then that's when I started to ask about Yemen coffee. Uh, and so I didn't know, I had to learn about coffee tasting. I started going to a lot of cafes and kind of bugging the baristas, just like trying to learn. I was obsessed with coffee for like several months. Uh, I met this really cool coffee consultant and teacher of mine who became, you know, I'm a coffee sheikh, I could say. And he, it was Willem Boots. Uh, he told me, well, you know, if you really want to take it serious, there's a coffee course called the Q course, quality greater course. And it's, it's, it's to become a coffee kind of sommelier, coffee taster. So I asked him, what is it? What is this course? What is it? He's like, let's exam. It's 22 exams. You know, one of the exams I had to learn 36 unique smells for coffee, identify them. I had to be able to taste coffee and identify the different organic acids found in them, the different roast profile, the 16 visual defects of the beans. It's a very in-depth like exam you know, less than 4,000 people probably have in the world. And in the whole world, there was nobody at that time 
no Arab who, who was an Arab coffee curator. <laughs> you know, I was like, what the heck? So I really wanted to pass the exam. It took this is more impressive than a law degree, I have to say. But go on. <laughs> no. I, I really was, you know, I, I wanted to learn. The thing with this exam is once you understand how coffee tastes like, it begins to change the power dynamics to producers. When producers know what their coffees are worth, they have a, a different bargaining power. Because instead of me just kind of being at the mercy of this buyer from, from Chicago or from like London or from wherever, I know what this coffee is worth. Secondly, if there's issues with the coffee, I can, I can work on them and see what am I doing on the ground to, to change the coffee flavor. Um, so I did that. And then I went to this big conference called the Specialty Coffee Association Conference. It's kind of our coffee like Hajj. <laughs> so if you can like relate it to that or like Coffee Olympics, probably another better term. Um, 15,000 people from around the world come. Producers, exporters, roasters, package people, equipment suppliers, you know, thought leaders. And I was like, I got, I was just so overwhelmed by the, the sheer and I'm guessing most of these are Europeans and Americans, right? These are these are not Arabs and Muslims coming to this. Um, these are there's producers from all you know countries that come from El Salvador, everyone, Kenya, okay. Indonesia. But I did see a power dynamic where like the producers were like begging for the the you know mostly white people to like it's interesting. Yes, the colonial powers have left you know physically their armies, but the structures. So the biggest producers, Brazil, Vietnam, Colombia, Ethiopia. The biggest export is Brazil is still number one because it's such a huge country. But after that, Germany, you know, America, France, countries that don't grow coffee. And I learned that the, the, a lot of the wealth is in the roast and distribution, which is still in control of those Western colonial powers. And so I'm like, you know what? I, wanted, I didn't like that. I wanted to decolonize this value chain, you know, the supply chain. Um, I like to use the word value chain because I think people to work, produce value to all the steps of it. So after that, I went to Yemen, summer of 2014. I did not tell my family. I told my family I was going there. Just my, my grandfather and parents thought I was going because they wanted me to get married. <laughs> to be honest, like they've been trying to get me married since I was probably like 15. <laughs> uh, I'm, and I'm 31 and not married right now, but in Yemeni years, I'm, I should be a grandfather. <laughs> so, been coffee. Yeah, you should be uh, dispensing advice at that age. Um, okay, go on. I, li- I like that. Okay, I'm going to get married. I'm going to go start a coffee business so i went to i went to yemen just to kind of like understand the situation of coffee i kind of thought maybe it would be like a, a non-profit i didn't think about it as a for i had no experience in business at all i don't i don't have you know access to material wealth these kind of things so um no my coffee you know my family you know we, so i learned early in coffee that my family has been, has been growing coffee for centuries like the oldest place in the world that grows coffee is yemen right and the oldest place in Yemen that grew coffee was in, in the province of Ib, uh, where my family is from. Uh, we're originally from the northwest, like a Jof area, but my family immigrated. They live in Ib, a specific place. Where I, when I, and, and as a kid, like I, in the West, we're so disconnected from our food. You know, you have no idea where, where it comes from. You know, you go to like your, your local Wet Rose or Sainsbury or our Costco here, and you just buy a package thing. You don't know where it came from, how it was picked, how it was processed. Uh, and so when I was a kid in Yemen, I would pick coffee cherries with my grandmother. Uh, I just, I didn't know, I did not know those were coffee beans inside. Uh, and so I found this, I, I felt really important to me. I felt that I was finding more of a calling than a career. So I go to Yemen. Mind you, this is 2014 now, 2013, 2013. This is post-Arab spring. And Yemen is in this like kind of like weird interim state where different factions are trying to rival for power in the Middle East. 
the revolutionary and counter-revolutionary forces are colliding. You know, groups are trying are forming and alliances are happening and a lot of volatility volatility in this in this time period and definitely not this and then you have like you know piracy in the Red Sea, inflation, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, US drones, uh, all these things and it really is not a good time to do any kind of business venture. Um, but you know, I just didn't know. I didn't have. I just kind of saw. I had this really, this just idea was really burning inside of me that I wanted to go and just figure this out. And I'm not going to you know lie and say I had this master plan. I did not. I just th there was no one before me who did this. So it's not like I can I can go and look at another coffee exporter, you know, and 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 follow kind of their lead and go to their farms or do their techniques or just kind of imitate what they do. I couldn't do that. I had to kind of make it up as I, you know, there's a famous proverb, you know, sometimes you got to fake it until you make it, right? <laughs> so I went, um, and I went to 32 different areas in Yemen regions. I grow coffee all across Yemen. This was probably the most exciting time in my life ever, you know, getting to meet these amazing farmers and, and hearing their stories, going to these really remote places, out like hours and days from anywhere, up mountains people who live a very simple and uninterrupted way of life being hosted by the kindest and generous people. Um, you know, it was a lot of difficulties like getting, dealing with amb ambushes, shootouts, uh, suicide, I survived two suicide attacks, going through malaria and tapeworms and gallstones. It's just, you know, and as I progressed in this business, it just got more and more difficult and my family was really concerned. But anyways, I brought back 32 samples from my first trip, about four or five, four and a half months of traveling. My family did not know what I was doing exactly. I could kind of just kind of leave in the morning and come back one day or two or three days later, usually with a sack of coffee beans from these villages I was collected. And um, I would write down my reports of the elevation and harvest patterns. But more you know, importantly, I got to hear the stories of these farmers and hear what, the, what issues they had and what problems they had. So I took back samples from 32 regions at that time, no one had been, had done like a deep, like that deep of like a, a survey of coffee in Yemen. And so we, we cupped them. Cupping is a science of coffee tasting. And it's a very specific way of doing it. You have like a, uh, a you go into a coffee lab, you have every cup of coffee, it's blindfolded and you put eight, usually uh, 12 grams of coffee or 8.25 grams for every 155 milliliters of water. And, you know, and you go around and you, you smell the coffees and then you put the water and then you wait four minutes for it to extract. And then you go with a spoon and you slurp very aggressively. You spit into a cup and you write down your notes. You know, I remember the first time I saw people do this, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I had ever seen. Like, why would you, like, you're spitting and you're writing down notes. And you have to have, like, a poker face. You can't influence the person next to you. Um, and so I, I did this and in the first... From the 19, from the 21 samples I brought back, 19 failed any basic standards. They were very, they just had a lot of defects and problems um, because the way they're processed. People in Yemen would pick cherries that are unripe because to pick ripe cherries, it takes a lot more work. You have to pay someone more. And if they're getting paid the same, they were just, you know, why, why should I do this extra work if I'm going to get paid the same? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I saw like, like I remember I met a farmer and I told her, I said, you know, excuse me, listen, I think you're doing is really great and I want to be able to support you. But like, if I paid you more money, could you just pick these red cherries, these ripe red cherries? She said, well, if you paid me more money, I would pick rainbow colored cherries for you. <laughs> she like, so that the way they would, the way they would dry it on the rooftops, 
you know, chickens would poop on the floor. It was uneven. They would, they would mix the coffees from different villages. So if you were a farmer who took care of your farm coffee and did a certain thing, it would be mixed with some other farmer. So um, there just was so, no standard essentially, right? There wasn't quality control. People were just picking whatever they could because why work harder? Coffee wasn't that great. That was coming out of it. So, okay. And, and so this is 21 samples, right? 19 were just pretty much horrible. But two of them, they weren't just like, so it's out of 100 points. We, anything 80 plus, 80 points and above is considered specialty coffee, you know? So like below 80 is where you find, where you, you'll see this at like Costa Coffee, Starbucks, you know? Um, 80 plus you'll see them and 85 plus is an amazing coffee, 85 plus. These are coffees you'll find at cafes like Square Mile, Proof Rock in London, Origins, um, um, Grumpy Mule. Uh, there's a few different companies that have these kind of, they're really well-known um, roasters in, in around London. And then you have the 90 plus coffees. These are special coffees that, you know, you'd be, they're, they're very hard to find. Uh, it takes a lot of work and it's just a lot, it's a mix of like the variety, the elevation, terroir, the farmer, all these different things to make it. And it's a very small percentage of coffee. Um, and so these coffees, these two, they weren't just good. They were 90 plus. Wow. And like my consultant, one of them, he could not believe that these, like he had never tasted coffees like this. You know, they were so vibrant flavors of papaya and mango with chocolate. You know, Yemen ha Yemeni coffees a lot of times have a chocolate characteristic. That's where the name mocha comes from. They would, when, when they would grow coffee in Colombia and other countries, it didn't have this chocolate flavor. So they would put chocolate in the cup to make it imitate the coffee that came from Yemen from mocha. And that's, you know, where the name mocha comes from. Anyway, so I went over there and I, um, I was really excited. So I went back to those areas, those two farms and, and uh, got more samples. The coffees were really bad and I was just kind of confused. So then I realized the way the coffees were picked where they were processed, this whole thing was, in, was arbitrary and random. There was no protocol. So I had to slow down and, you know, and, and begin doing community organizing to these farmers and, and trying to help them understand why, how their flavors are being affected. And that's the hardest part is getting people to believe something new and try it out in a country that's like older, like Yemen. And you have to do it with a lot of humility and no arrogance. As an outsider, you can't come in there, you know, trying to educate people who have who been doing it for centuries. Um, and so I had to be very get the buy-in of a lot of older community members and slowly begin this, this transformation of their coffee. And did it help that you were Yemeni? Would it have made, been far more difficult if you were a white guy going to Yemen to say, I want, an, I want the best coffee you guys have? Well, my white people won't, just, they won't go to Yemen. <laughs> but it is, it is different when they see me, you know, my Yemeni out attire and speaking the language and what I, I would do. The, the, reason, the reason I mentioned that is I've realized something that I comment on in the past is whenever there's a war-torn region and things become sort of stable, you, you typically get these um, um, non, well, not-for-profit type of organizations wow. typically run by white people who go to um, get local artisans to make stuff. They come back to the well, US or Europe and then they really upsell the, really raise the prices on these things. And, and they act like, you know, we're helping, we're helping the, the local farmers and the local artists. And that's, that's why I asked because um, that's something that's, that's a phenomenon that happens in Afghanistan and, and it just, it's always pissed me off, but sorry. No, there, 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 no, no, it really, like I could tell you a company, Roots for Peace, company in, uh, in the UK. Uh, the story of his very inspirational story of the founder who was a drug addict who cleaned up his act and he's in Afghanistan and he's helping farmers grow mulberries. And he's built a business in the UK where he's raised millions of dollars. 
and money to to make these nutritional bars and he's in Sanisbury, he's, he's throughout Europe now. Um, there are things that I think are problematic. He goes and he, if you go on his website, he wears he, the Afghan traditional outfits. It's a white man doing this work. Um, the things that I can't hate and I actually admire what he does is that he's doing it. You know, so for us, like I, there's so many examples. There's a, a white woman in Texas who has a $30 million business a year selling chai. She went to India and discovered chai, you know, but she's doing it. Uh, this, and so for me, I've saw so many examples of this, even in coffee. I, I don't like the name. Even in Yemen, there was a military person who had a company working in coffee. He never has ever been to Yemen, you yeah. know, and he said on his website, it still says on his website till today that we need to sit, help these poor people because if we don't, they're going to become more likely to become radicalized. <laughs> that we're somehow genetically predisposed to become terrorists. It's disgusting, it really is. It's like so. It's like See, buy my coffee, or or they're going to become terrorists. Exactly. I mean, this is this is, but this is why I, I raised this point because because you you've done this. The number of the number of Muslims that I've come across who have done this is a very small list, and and there's many reasons why we don't do it or why we try to do it but we don't succeed. But Alhamdulillah, you you've succeeded in in something that you wanted to do, and you are the face of this. You you're Yemeni, you're Arab. You're doing something from your own community, your own land, and you're doing well in the West. This is a this is phenomenal. This is this this does not happen. This is, and and this is this is why I think I think you you are in a position to to really you know stand up and say we can do this and we should be doing this, and and I think people are curious how that works because a lot of people wouldn't know how to go back to Afghanistan and and work with those villages because they don't have the backing of the the you know the investment firms in in Europe. Um, and, and the backers who you know who, who are going to publish in big magazines and supermarkets, you really need all those connections. But Alhamdulillah, you've you've done you've done that. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, I'm very thankful for where I am. And you know, it's there are a lot of obstacles, financial resources you need to do this, the guidance um, to do this. And so a lot of these companies they they see opportunities and they understand because you know it's in the history of colonization to know how to go to get these resources and how to repackage them in a way that makes sense for consumers here. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm a big believer that we as immigrants, you know, we have the unique place to be the bridge makers. We come from producing countries and we live in the consuming countries. So we should be the people who are the intersection. And it, to be honest, like myself and all the people like this, we're a threat to these, these kind of in people who don't want that to happen because, you know, in the case of like the Afghani, um, this Afghan, this person working in Afghanistan. If there was an Afghan woman doing this work, and there was him, who do you think people would more more likely to support? Someone who has a a connection to the land, to the people, um, and you know. And so, I, I really hope that people listening can can find and figure out what they want to do and offer. Whether it's Pakistani mangoes or leather goods, whether it's um, uh, actually I'm working with. I do some consultation in for, for me. I do for free. I don't have a lot of time, you know, they, these days, but I'll, I'll make time, you know, throughout the year for people who, who are interested um, and put on a calendar and have a, you know, two hour conference call. And, and I'm, I'm, I, I consult people. I have a sister who's working in Afghanistan, Kandahar. There's a special Afghan pomegranate cultivar that's only there helping her, you know, figure out. I have, I work in coffee, but it's pretty similar building blocks. Yeah. How do you develop a supply chain? How do you make sure you have an impact model that makes sense and that actually is sending back, you know, resources and you can have metrics for that? How do you market and tell that story in a way that what is, who is, what is your go-to-market strategy? How much capital do you need to raise? Um, 
going up in the Silicon Valley also, you know, there's a lot of venture capital firms here and there's, there's certain funding you, you, you can get, um, but you need to be careful about where you get funding from. So it's something that I really care a lot about. And, you know, there's people from Senegal working in Senegal East Sea, chocolate in Mexico, um, just different types of industries. And we need to go back to our, you know, our communities, our countries. And, you know, um, and I'm seeing this phenomenon, a lot of, you know, uh, second, third generation kids who have are lawyers and doctors and engineers, and they started as a hobby doing something related to a passion they have in their country. And I've seen them create phenomenal businesses from that. Yeah. Inshallah, I, I, you know, please make me draws. I'm trying to. It's still, you know, we'll get to where I am now. But, but um, so I go and I and I start this this journey. And I would what I would do in Yemen is they had these after lunch. In Yemen, unfortunately, there's this drug which I think you guys know about in England called Qat or Cat. Mm. Uh, it's, it's consumed a lot in Yemen and also East Africa, Somalia and Yemen. And uh, for every one coffee farm, there's seven of these these hot drug farms. And so it's actually a methamphetamine. That's what it is. It's it's a lower. It's not as strong as like a lot of like you know drugs, but it has a mild stimulant effect. But the issue, it takes up so much of Yemen's water resources. Um, Thirty-two percent of Yemen's water resources goes to this drug. And in some areas, fifty percent. And it's very similar to poppy seeds in Afghanistan, opium, coco, cocaine in Colombia. Like people grow these things, they don't want to, but they need to survive. So you need to give them alternatives for that. And so I was hoping that if I could get coffee quality to a certain level and sell it at a certain price, I can pay a higher premium for that and be, be able to compete with this drug. So what I would do is after lunch, everyone in Yemen kind of chills out in these long, you know, majalis or scotch sessions, they call them and diwans, and they would chew qat, and I would wait about 20, 30 minutes until the qat kind of took its effect on people. And I would give this kind of like Braveheart speech <laughs> on the history of coffee and how it changed the world. And then I would bring it back to their reality and tell them like, right now, no one cares about you. There are no roads here. These NGOs that come, they take advantage of you. Uh, you know, no electricity, and nobody will help you except for yourselves. And I would always recite the ayah in the Quran, Indeed, God will not change the condition of a people unless they change themselves. And now let them finish the last part of it. And I would, I would tell them, like I said, I'm willing to help you guys with whatever I can. You know, the best systems, the best technologies, you know, to help you improve your coffee. Pay you a high price if you guys are willing to do this. And so we began this kind of, and this goes back to my ground, my um, community organizing work. You got to make people feel committed to, to a vision that you have. And, and if they see you committed, they'll, they'll, they'll be more likely. It takes a while, a while to convince. And I was able to, alhamdulillah, after you know, a, a long time of talking to a lot of the elders and being in the villages to get their buy-in. And back to your question, yes, being Yemeni did help me. Like, you know, because I had a vested stake in the interest of this. And people can smell, people can, people know you're being genuine. They can tell. Uh, I, I hope so. For me, they could. And so I tried as much as I can to be honest with them. Uh, never promise them things you don't, you can't fulfill and just try to be realistic. And uh, alhamdulillah, as, I was, as I, we were succeeding, we were building these drying beds, we were you know, improving their coffee, developing like cooperative systems, you know, getting women involved in these, in, these, in these institutions. Like every one step I would take, you know, there would be a political issue that happened that would take me back 10 steps. And then uh, things really came to a halt on March 25th, 2015, when this, this, you know, the war began, and I was in Yemen, waking up to bombs being dropped, and missiles, and just, just, 
agony and fear, like horror of people dying and, and cries of women and children and, you know, really feeling the sense of like, this is my father that I'm not going to see my parents ever again. Yeah. And so it's just a very hard space to be in for that. I never, I knew, I never, I grew up in the West. I never experienced war. Only read about and watched the movie, or maybe like a lot of times, our parents and grandparents won't talk about what they went through. It's very hard to like. Uh, the story is very um, hard to talk about it. The story is no um, subhanallah. There's there's so many different elements to it. It's not it's not just you've gone in, taken a coffee, and come back. You've really you've really entered the community and 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 work with them. Like so, like may Allah reward you for that. I think this is it's an it's an inspirational story, and this is why I wanted to talk to you because I I read your biography, I read what you've been through, and I thought. This isn't this isn't just coffee because I think coffee, it's it's a it's a very easy thing to just explain and say there you go now I have coffee from Yemen and in the US and we you know we're doing well alhamdulillah, but you but you've done more and there's there's a there's a book written about you as well. It's called the uh, the monk of Mocha, and I I am not the monk of Mocha. It's uh, Sheikh Ali Muhammad Shadili, but okay, it, it, no, it's the, a weird thing to have. Some. It looks really good. I checked on Amazon and Subhanallah, it's got really good ratings and reviews. People are hooked on that. And you've got some really good endorsements um, from many different authors on 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 your sto- on, on the story that um, was written about you. So, um, but this but this is Subhanallah. This is why this is why it's beautiful because you've you've just done so much. And Inshallah, we'll, we'll pray for you and we we hope you you get success in what you're doing. And and I encourage people to look into into your business and all everything we've spoken about. I'll put links in the bottom so people can read about you and and the different articles and and sources you've referenced if people want to learn more. So, so just before we wrap this up, I wanted to ask you two, two questions. If you, if you allow me, um, one is you, so you're Arab, you're Muslim and you're talking about coffee and you're doing really well. What has that been like to, to the, to the West who, who now essentially act like they own the coffee world? What is it like for you to be reminding them? This is, this is, this is essentially, um, Although it's our history and, and our drink, now it's, it's it's a global drink. But do you ever have c- kind of like a shock moment where people look at you and say, "Wait, Muslims invented this, or Muslims, you know, gave this to the West?" No, I never, never thought I'd ever be in this position because, you know, Dave Eggers he wrote this book about me, and he spent three years with me, and that was like a very interesting experience. Going, he went to Yemen, to Ethiopia, to Djibouti, and he, you know, and just it was a very like. Uh, I don't know how to explain it for someone to, to take that much time to study you and understand your life. And I learned a lot about myself from that book, actually just the patterns of my life and how think how we are, who we are because of events that happened to us early on or in our childhood and later. Um, and so whenever I, I talk to people, like when, you know, when you hear the word Muslim or Yemen or whatever it is, they don't really know much about us. And so when we say the word coffee, most people can relate to that word. Um, and so, uh, I, it's my kind of da'wah, really. It's, it's my way of just kind of humanizing us and just like, you know, this is, we've contributed positively to your society, to your world. When people drink my coffee in, in cafes in New York or London or where, Tokyo, wherever it is, these are people who for the first time get to experience a Muslim product, you know, especially one that was picked in, by Muslims and processed by Muslims. Then I get the opportunity to tell them, like, you know, the word of coffee comes from this Arabic word. The word mocha is a city in Yemen. The Sufis, you know, started this. this, this they love the poems about coffee. The word history of Java. Uh, and then more importantly, like, just the reality of farmers and how much work goes into producing a cup of coffee. 
and how you need to be, whether it comes from Yemen or Kenya or Indonesia, so much is produced, takes, it takes 20 hands that touches your coffee before it gets to you. And the amount of effort that is pretty outstanding. Um, and I, I, I think it, for me, I feel a sense of responsibility to tell that story. Uh, in the beginning, it was more to non-Muslims, like, hey, we're good people. But after a while, I realized, you know, I, I want to produce culture for our own community. And that we as Muslims, we should be proud about his, history of heritage of coffee. We produce something very powerful and in many ways change the world. And yeah. so I kind of shifted more to that focus. And then the idea of like finding your why, you know, why are you here? Why are we here? And, 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 and that's, in Islam, we have a lot of values that, you know, they're, they're very noble ones to look up to. Um, and I'm trying to, I try to figure that out for myself every day. So that's been, it's been interesting trying to um, tell that story to, to non-Muslims, but the reactions, man, I somehow like people, it's so incredible. I remember once someone emailed me. He said, I'm going to change my name to Abdul and become a Stufi. No <laughs> like, way. That's one extreme. Um, but just people coming to me and thanking me. I remember one of the things that really touched my heart was when the Muslim ban happened, when Trump initiated this Muslim ban in America uh, in his first you know, month of office, uh, Yemen was on that, land, that ban list. And I remember so many cafes that we work with and other ones we don't, you know, defending us. Uh, going against this policy and defending us and even James Freeman the founder of Blue Bottle he wrote an article and he called it he said coffee is a Muslim drink it was published and it was widely you know spread he mentioned our story and uh it was it was really good I think that as Muslims that we should always you know contribute positively so to the humankind and we do we have done in the past with science and you know many of the foundational bases of our history and science and you know it comes from Muslim scholars and other um, communities in, in Hindi, Sanskrit, and Greek philosophers, and we were kind of the people who held it together and then added to it and created our own things. And coffee, alhamdulillah, is one of those things that we've contributed positively to the world. Yeah, yeah, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Okay, final question. So, where can we get your coffee? Is it only available in the U.S.? We sell online on our website, portofmocha.com, M-O-K-H-A. Uh, we also sell with roasters around the world. Um, uh, you know, in the UK, there's, a, there's a, quite a few. There's one, we, Grumpy Mule, we, we had a really wonderful partnership with um, last year. Uh, we don't have any currently in the UK that I can think of. I'll, but if you go on our website, you can go and get them directly. Um, and also, it's, uh, uh, it's been really great to see a resurgence of even coffee. Other companies, you know, get involved in coffee. There's like a company called Subkamid that's also doing work in Yemen now. Kima Coffee, there's another one called um, and many other people going into coffee in Yemen. Um, so I would say if you can buy a coffee, great. But if you, if you can't support any Yemen coffee, you guys, you find and support any Yemeni, uh, cause, cause the reality of the situation in Yemen is that it's so horrible, horrific. We just got our first case of, of coronavirus and a country where we don't have any, you know, we already have the worst humanitarian crisis. And so we yeah. are in no way ready for any kind of pan, uh, like pandemic like this. And so, Coffee is one of the few ways that money gets sent to farmers directly. Um, so that's that's that. Uh, and if if yeah, alhamdulillah. So I really appreciate you. And just what would mean more to me is uh, just spreading the word of coffee as Muslims, being proud of it, telling your friends and coworkers, um, and, and being proud of this history that we that we're a part of. And uh, if you don't like coffee, try drinking, especially coffee. And 
and when I say specialty, it's if you go to a cafe, you know, in, in London, if they can tell you where the coffee was grown, the elevation, the name of the farmer, like the more intimate the details they have, it gives you a better sign of the coffee. And try those coffees from Kenya and Indonesia and Europe. Because that's another way for you to, to give sadaqah. And I'll end with this. I think that a lot of times we think we have to do huge projects to have major impact on the world. Really, I think that if millions of people around the world do small acts every day, these small daily acts, that's how real change happens. And coffee is one example. Buying ethical clothing is another example. Um, local uh, support local businesses. Uh, just as consumers, we have to really, uh, and especially as people of conscience and faith, there's, there's a responsibility that tells us like where the things that we consume, where they come from, and, and understanding that we are either, when we buy something, we're either uplifting somebody or, or helping to exploit them. And when we decide to go cheap on something, you know, not only do you get a cheap product like fast fashion, fast food, but you also have to understand that someone is going to pay a consequence to you being cheap. You know, someone you know might not see, so that's the reality. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for all of that. That's. I wasn't ready for that. I was just ready for a very small conversation about coffee. But you've just um, you've taken us on a journey, and given us some information that I I I couldn't have found otherwise or read otherwise. Um, Subhanallah. I, that's what no, I'm thank saying. you. I I don't really open up like a lot of people. I don't get the opportunity to talk to Muslims. To be honest, a lot. Most of like events or things I do are, are usually non-Muslim engagements, which is fine, but I, I felt the chemistry with you and I sincerity with you. And I really, um, you know, I really appreciate you having the space for me and for other people, uh, alhamdulillah. So I look forward, I should, I, I usually go to London, you know, the UK, you know, throughout the year. So I hope to um, have a lot of friends out there that I want to go see uh, Nizam Dean, my friend Nizam, he's out there. My friend Benny uh, Nadir from Benny, he has a wonderful run club over there too. And, uh, just a, a ton of wonderful people that I am are very dear and near to me, and I have, a, and you, London particularly has a special place in Liverpool in particular, in my heart. So I am sure that we'll see each other inshallah when, this, you know, this coronavirus world we live in inshallah eventually um, goes back to normal. Inshallah, inshallah, inshallah. I'll see you in London. Bring a bring a big sack of um coffee, um ninety five. Uh, my coffee will make will make its way to you before. Uh, <laughs> Before I get there, I'm no, I'm gonna get on your website now and order something. Thank you so much. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I, I appreciate you. taking your time. If if I can help you in any way, let me know. And inshallah, um, I'll let you know how the response is. But people are people are really interested in this topic. So, inshallah, we're working in the future. If, if something comes comes around, and uh, take care of yourself. And I hope your families, everyone's doing well in this situation in India, <clears throat> in Yemen, and <clears throat> and the U.S. And all the wise back. Thank you so much. Time for us to all reset and you know try to be you know think about the world we live in, how we want to come go back to it in a better way. Inshallah. Take care, man.